Grenfell was the fire in an apartment block in the middle of the night in West London, actually very close to where I live. And I got a phone call from the hospital saying major incident alert. And I looked outside and I could just see West London lit up by this fireball on the horizon. We had some patients, but actually we realized very early on that we had much fewer patients than we could have taken. And it's not because they were going somewhere else, it's because none of them survived. Uh, one of my colleagues actually resuscitated a girl and was quite traumatized by it afterwards. And she looked just like her daughter. And it took her a long time to get over that. How do we get over things like that? I don't know. Mental health issues among physicians are a silent and global epidemic. In 2021, the British Medical Association reported that nearly two-thirds of doctors in the UK have anxiety or depression. Each year in the US, roughly 300 to 400 doctors die by suicide. Studies have shown that suicide rates among doctors were two to three times higher than the general population in both the US and the UK. And nearly half of junior doctors and one in three GPs are considering leaving the profession, with the top reason being burnout. And it's not only in the West that there is a crisis in the medical field. In Lebanon, for example, thousands of doctors have left the country amidst its political and economic collapse, with those remaining suffering from trauma, PTSD, and other severe mental health challenges. To learn how physicians cope with such extreme pressure, I spoke with distinguished anesthesiologist Dr. Helgi Johansson, the vice president of the Royal College of Anesthetists in the UK, and someone who's worked to save the lives of victims in some of London's most traumatic events over the past three decades, including the Grenfell Towers fire, the London Bridge terrorist attack, and the anti-LGBTQ attack in the 1990s. We talked about the impact of such events on the mental health of healthcare workers, including his own, and the importance of resilience, finding healthy coping mechanisms, and how to create a supportive culture in healthcare while breaking down the stigma surrounding mental health issues in that field. Hi everyone, and welcome back to MindWork, where we're on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jasmine Elgamal. Dr. Johansson, thank you so much for joining us on MindWork today. I'm so honored and so excited to have you on the show with us. It is a pleasure, and please call me Helgi. Okay, it's it'll be difficult, but I will try. <laughs> Helgi, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I'm, you. I'm I'll really, correct you every time. <laughs> please, you might have to do it a couple of times. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I know, first of all, how incredibly busy you are and how intense work has been lately with the strikes and everything. Anyone watching or listening to this now will know that we're in the midst of, of these junior doctor strikes and, and consultants such as yourself are having to pick up the slack. So I really do appreciate you taking the time. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay. We have a lot to delve into. I think that a lot of our listeners probably won't be that familiar with your world. And so I want to you know, talk to you about all kinds of things that you've dealt with. You've had an incredibly successful career, obviously, as an anesthesiologist and the director for medical education at Imperial College. 
where which incidentally is where my husband works as well so you know him <laughs> you know him that way indeed so you you've had you've had an incredibly storied career an incredibly intense career but I, I know from what we've talked about before, from what I know about you, from following you on social media, that it hasn't been one without stress, without its own traumas, without personal difficulties and loss of many different kinds. So we're going to delve into all of that in the episode. But I think the great thing, the reason I'm so grateful for you doing this is that we civilians, if I can call us that. We don't know much about medicine, let alone emergency medicine. That world just seems so opaque, I think, to me and others who don't know anything about it. And I think when we think about doctors or surgeons or anesthesiologists, anything like that, we just think, well, how do they do it? I don't know how they do it. I say that about my husband all the time. I don't know how he does it. And I almost feel like that minimizes it a little bit because it just assumes that you just do it and you don't go through these massive difficulties that normal people like myself or others who may be listening to this might. But at the end of the day, you're normal people too. You just don't hear that much about it. So so I'm really looking forward to talking to you about some of this stuff. You've been incredibly open about talking about mental health in the medical field on Twitter, on social media. You've been a huge supporter of junior doctors in general, but especially also now during the strike. And I know that you've acted as a mentor to many younger doctors as well. So we're going to get into all of that. But I thought I would just start by asking you, you know, how did you get on this path to becoming a, a doctor, to becoming an anesthesiologist versus something else? And how you just ended up here where you are right now? So I suppose the easiest way to deal with that is to talk give a kind of potted life history. So I'm 51 years old. That means I was born in 1971. I was born in Iceland. And I lived in Iceland until I was 12 years old when my father's job moved us to the UK. Lived in Woking in Surrey, which is a leafy kind of suburban town, commuter town for London, where nothing terribly much happens most of the time. And went to a comprehensive school, in, which is a state school in Guildford. First of all, didn't think I was clever enough to do medicine and then started getting reasonable grades. And, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do some work experience. Did some work experience at the local hospital. And that's really where it got cemented in my brain. And I thought, yeah, I really want to do this. And I, I suppose that was my first experience of knowing what it was like inside the hospitals. The thing that you were saying that nobody else knows yeah. apart from from a patient side if they're unlucky but if if you're lucky you can avoid hospitals for a majority of your life and so you never know really what we do and that's especially true for anesthesiologists um, most people have no idea what we do um, many people don't think we're doctors um, and um, most people think we just give the injection and then walk away um, uh, which would be very bad because you'd probably stop breathing and there'd be nobody to breathe for you and, and manage your blood pressure and all that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, so I got into med school, um, which was very nice. Um, I went to Barts, uh, which is in uh, East London, and, um, and spent six years there studying. Um, during that time, uh, I 
uh, I was religious at the time. I was a, a committed Christian. Um, that changes later on, um, just before you think that I'm going to um, go down that route. Uh, um, I, I got married to a woman um, and, um, and uh, then I qualified and became a doctor. And during that time, uh, first of all, I wanted to be a pediatrician because everyone does. Then I got inspired by the internal medics. Um, so, so I ended up doing some, some postgraduate training in internal medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, there was a there was a time towards the kind of about three years into my my uh, medical career as a doctor, um, and I think it's a it, it's quite commonly a time of flux. It's really when you start reviewing who you are um, as a doctor, whether you're in the right specialty, whether you're choosing the right specialty. Also, it's a time when there's a lot of flux in people's lives. So I was at this point, I was about twenty seven. <laughs> Um, so young. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, I qualified when I was twenty-four. Oh my goodness! So I know. Um, and and what... I know in the in the states, um, medicine is a postgraduate career, so they, yeah. they start a little bit later. Um, but um, I went to medical school when I was eighteen. I was oh my a child, goodness. really. Oh my! Um, wow. At, yeah. at what point do you specialize? I just wanted to kind of get the chronology right. At what point do you so, have? To- Specialize. Yeah, so it, in in my day, um, it was one year postgraduate for your foundation year, or what we called house officer, um, and then you start specialising. And um, it's it, it was actually a lot easier to do a couple of years in one specialty and then move to another. Whereas now, um, the training programmes have very much been fixed. There's mm-hmm. national recruitment to them, um, and essentially you need to start working towards your specialty um, building up your cv somewhere late medical school before you even qualify mm-hmm. um which is it a good thing or a bad thing i think it's probably a bad thing i think it's quite nice to have a little bit of freedom and be able to do a job in this and a job in that but i first got exposed to the anesthesiologist when i was at med school um mm-hmm. and um and they were always the cool people. Um, they were the ones that would arrive in in a in an emergency situation, and everyone would go, "Oh, phew, thanks, great, you're here," um, and um, and would bring a sense of calm, sense of order to it. They just know what to do. Um, and that was no, quite I, ne- I never would have. I mean, I just that is so. My- I never would have thought that. I mean, you know, I've, mm. I've had to go under general anesthesia a couple of times. And so I know the importance of an anesthesiologist, but I never would have guessed that they're the cool person that comes in the room. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and that's because that's, yeah, that, that's the side of anesthesiology that, that you don't really see most of the time. Because most people who meet an anesthesiologist are having a routine operation mm-hmm. um, and they'll, they'll meet us on a, on, on a surgical list where, uh, where we're giving normal anesthetics. But then we, we're on the labor ward, putting in epidurals, doing cesarean sections, uh, we're also in clinics, um, perioperative clinics, lay, uh, pregnancy clinics, where we're planning high-risk patients who are who are going to end up with a cesarean section or end up going to labour. 
We are in the resuscitation department as well. Um, every trauma call that happens in my hospital is attended by an anesthesiologist, and we're central to the resuscitations of those patients. And we take them to the operating room um, and continue resuscitating them around there. And then we're up in the intensive care unit as well. So you're, I mean, um, you're so everywhere. You're part we're of... We're everywhere, everywhere. yeah. Yeah, literally everywhere. You know, almost everywhere. We're not so much in the community. Um, yeah. Apart from, apart from pre-hospital um, trauma medicine, which we do as well. Uh, that, that's kind of shared between us and emergency medicine. So, so yeah, so that, so that, that was the, because I was on the inside, I kind of knew some of that, but it, it, but you really don't until you go to med school. But then I got slightly distracted by the internal medics who were very inspirational of arts and, um, and so did some of that postgraduate and then several things happened, as I said, in 1998, 99. So in 1998, uh, I came out, probably had a bit of an influence on my choice of career. Um, Anesthesia has always been seen as very open. Um, I came out in 1998, as I said, which wasn't, uh, there weren't that many gay people around. It certainly wasn't as easy to be gay as it is now. Um, And um, it's almost disappointing now. Nobody really cares whether I've got a husband or a wife. Um, (laughs) and um and which is you know it's great yeah especially in the medical i mean would you say that i can imagine that especially in the medical world that they weren't maybe as open-minded i mean like you said it wasn't Absolutely. common back then anyway but maybe especially in the medical field where yeah, absolutely there was there was one out gay person in my med school and um, I hope he never has to hear the things that were said about him behind his back. It was really awful. And of course, I wasn't gay at that point. No, no, no. Um, because uh, what, what did it mean to be gay in the 1990s? You've got AIDS and you died. Oh, God. Um, uh, so I didn't want to be that person. Yeah. Um, but then late 90s, it kind of all happened then what what probably tipped me towards anesthesia was being close to the Soho nail bomb. So uh, there was an anti-gay bomber um, who planted a nail bomb in the Admiral Duncan in on the 30th of April 1999. And I can remember it clear as, bell, as a bell. Um, it was a beautiful evening, quite kind of cold, but a really still blue sky. And um, I was having... Uh, coffee with Paul, who uh, at that time was my boyfriend and now is my husband. Um, and um, and then I heard this. It almost sounded like a champagne cork being popped, but a really loud one. Uh, looked outside and then there was smoke billowing out of the Admiral Duncan pub about 30 metres down the road from where I was. And I was one of the first doctors on the scene. And that was really scary. I was a I was a third year doctor at that point, so still pretty inexperienced. There were patient after patient, well, person after person being being carried out of the pub, with their limbs blown off, um, with some severe injuries, um, bleeding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I just didn't know what to do. Mm. And it's a really awful feeling. Um, I, I kind of thought. I probably knew some of the things that I might be able to do, but I didn't have any equipment. Right. Um, and, coffee. 
No, yeah, exactly. So there was no equipment. I, I didn't really have the resuscitation skills at that time uh, that I so admired in the anesthesiologists. And then I remember a motorbike came along, uh, ambulance motorbike, and they had cannulas, and I start cannulating people. So at least then, you know, I I I, I could do something. I could be useful. And sorry, um, what is that, Helgi, can, cannulating people? Uh, so, so that's putting a, uh, citing an intravenous line okay. into okay. into a vein. Mm -hmm. uh, so you and, could do uh, something at least. I mean, why? Yeah, so then I could do something. And then uh, I was there for about two or three hours and, um, and then we went home, uh, which was a very odd feeling. And the feelings that I got afterwards were very strange uh, the biggest one and so the uh, biggest one was anger and I'm not an angry person I'm actually a very non-angry person I'm quite benign most of the time very calm it's very difficult to rile me um, but it was a real hot seething anger that somebody could be so cruel mm. and somebody could do something like that to uh, perfectly innocent people who are just going about their business half of whom weren't even gay, actually. They were just with their gay friends and it happened to be in a gay pub. And so the the bomber didn't even hit his target audience. He just hit innocent passers-by. And, and, and that seething anger took me quite a long time to process, but I processed it. Um, I'm a very good pigeonholer, so I'm very good at carrying carrying on with my life, stuffing it into a corner and kind of attending to it a bit later. Um, when I got divorced, I didn't tell anyone for about three months at work. Um, and so I was just going to work pretending everything was normal um, when I was going through a really messy divorce. So it was all, I'm quite good at that sort of thing. Is that, I mean, yeah. would you, I mean, would you, I guess, I, I mean, I would probably describe that as, compartmentalizing and it sounds it sounds like a defense mechanism because you just either can't or don't want to or don't have the time or the luxury to feel those feelings given everything else you have to do i mean i would be interested to hear how you you know how and when you did end up processing something like that i'm talking specifically now about about the uh, the pub, but was that your first, you know, it's funny hearing that story now because I feel like this generation, I mean, like, I feel like we've grown up, not grown up, I would say, not my generation, maybe the one just after, has grown up with so much violence in the news and so many of these you know, terrorist bombings, attacks here, uh, anti-LGBTQ, anti-this, anti-that. In the U.S., you have mass shootings every day or every other day, practically. I mean, there's just, there's so much of it in the news. Back then, was that your first experience with something? I mean, also given that you were 30 meters away, but was that really, because what you're describing, the anger at how someone can be so cruel I feel like that's almost because like we've become desensitized to that now just because of everything that we see every day in the news. But was that a, was that a shock to you at the time? And was that something? It was. I, 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 I think you made a really interesting point, actually. Um, and I'm just thinking about my reaction to the last mass shooting that I saw from the States, which was, oh, it's another mass shooting in the States. Right. Well, 
they right. should do something about guns. Right. Um, that's that's as far as it went, which actually is really. I feel sad at myself that I've got that inured to it, that it, immune, that numb to the the tragedy. I don't know what to do about it. I don't think I should be that immune to that tragedy. I suppose me reflecting on that probably shows that I'm not immune to it and, and that actually I, I think about it and I think that it is a really tragic, awful thing and it increases my anger at the fact that the gun lobby is so strong in America and 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 my real feeling of sadness for all the people that have died needlessly um, in really tragic circumstances like that. I mean, that's interesting. It's, I don't know. I'm torn listening to you say that because should you really react and feel every tragedy? I mean, how are we supposed to do that as human beings? I mean, we're talking about, you know, this this podcast series is about, is about mental health at work, but mental mm. health at work means mental health at the workplace, mental health related to things that are happening at your job, but also things that are happening outside of your job, like personal things, like your divorce, for example. And it also means collective mental health, collective trauma, things that are happening to us as human beings disasters, uh, economic crises, um, mass shootings, mass violence. So, you know, I wonder, Helgi, if we are supposed to ask ourselves, well, why am I not more upset about this? Why am I not? So isn't that our, isn't that our body's defense mechanism saying, okay, I actually can't do anything about my, let's talk about you. You can't do anything about mass shootings in the U S you are, you aren't, you can't do anything about, I mean, climate change. I mean, you can do we can all do our part. I mean, I'm yeah. sure we recycle, but um, you can't really do much about that. I mean, you can't, there's so many things we can't do. You're in a very fortunate position to be able to do something about other things that are happening. And I want to talk about, for example, the Grenfell Tower fire that mm. happened in 2017, which you also treated a lot of people who were, who were in, in really heavily injured in that fire. And you are in this incredibly... Uh, unique relatively position of being able to do something about something horrible why do you feel like you have to worry about something else that you can't do something about but that's part of humanity isn't it um i i i think if i if i didn't feel for those people even though i can't do anything about them how can i feel for the people in front of me i don't know I think it's important that we keep our sense of outrage at wrongs in the world because otherwise nothing will change and we can do something. I think I think the collective there's a collective sense of outrage at wrong things that does change things and that maybe just in very very subtle ways um but it changes the the kind of the ethos, the the way people think, the group think of a nation. I firmly believe that we need to feel those things and we need to express that sense of sadness when something bad happens. Um, I don't know. Um, but um, why don't we go on to, should, should we go on to the Grenfell? Yeah. Bit, sure. You mentioned it. I think it's quite, quite interesting. And um, it, if I bridge it a little bit with, um, uh, so uh, 
you were talking about me compartmentalizing and uh, and I, I think you're right. I'm a really, really great compartmentalizer. And I did that during my divorce. I did that a bit when I came out. Uh, now, I didn't do it so much. So, so my son tragically died of suicide um, two years ago. It probably shows how I've matured emotionally maybe I don't know that um, I dealt with that very differently it felt awful at the time and I was given you know carte blanche to take as much leave as I wanted to actually I took a week and I went back to work the next week and lots of people go why on earth are you back at work and actually work was a haven why would I want to be at home when uh, work actually means a lot to me um I love my job. Um, I love the people that I work with. We have a great team going, and um, and why would I, uh, why would I not use those normals to make me feel normal a little bit, rather than just feel in pain and helpless about the pain? Uh, because you're going to have to go back to work at some point. And I'd rather do it early while it's still kind of okay to talk about it. And one thing I did was in the team brief every morning, I mentioned the fact that um, my son had died recently. Uh, so we got it out of the way. Um, everyone knew. Um, and so if I was acting a bit strangely, they would have picked it up um, and, and they would have said, Helgi, you, you just need to go to the side. I didn't. I think I, think I was perfectly safe as a clinician during that time but that's kind of uh, that's how I dealt with it mm -hmm. and I don't know whether that's I could should have dealt with it differently lots of people told me I should have dealt with it differently but actually I made that decision to do it that way and um, I have to say I think it's worked very well for me um, and it meant that I didn't have to come back you know three months later and then it would be a thing um, that nobody would mention and and and, and you have to go through all that grief again, um, rather than just have it in one big lump at the beginning when it feels really awful and painful anyway. Mm. But that isn't going on to the Grenfell thing. Um, but uh, so, uh, so in 2017, we had quite a lot of major incidents at work and they affected us quite severely. So uh, there was the Westminster uh, attack where a terrorist drew a, car uh, uh, drove a car across Westminster Bridge plowing down a load of people um, and then stabbed a policeman outside outside the palace of Westminster where the parliament is um, and um, and we got uh, a fair number of the casualties from there to to us I remember exactly the day that it happened. I was examining medical students for their finals, and about four o'clock in the afternoon, I saw on Twitter that something bad had happened. I was in a break between two students. I had one student left to examine. I thought, okay, this is going to be big. Let's finish finish the last last candidate. Um, so finish the last candidate, um, and then headed over to uh, to the uh, to where everyone was was congregating. Um, our major incident protocol was was um, uh, going into action, um, and um, and I have to say, and I'm really proud of this. We dealt with it really well, mm. um, and 
uh, we could have taken a lot more casualties just because of the system that we had. We had a very much a one-way system. We avoided overcrowding in the in the emergency department by corralling everyone upstairs in the theatre's coffee room, um, and um, and and sending people down as needed, and used up all the operating theatres uh, or operating rooms if you're American. And it was it was a good time of day as well because most of the operating rooms were coming to the end of their their daily operating so they were all free apart from the vascular surgeons who overran as always mm-hmm. um and um and we dealt with it very well um there were there was a lot of discussion afterwards about how we should do it differently um uh, there were people who were upset people who were upset for all the same reasons why I was upset before at the previous terrorist attack um at anger at somebody doing something so cruel uh, and um and we Im- improved the things we did and then Grenfell happened um and Grenfell was the fire in an apartment block in the middle of the night in West London actually very close to where I lived um and I got a phone call this was like 2.30 in the morning, um, and I got a phone call from the hospital saying major incident alert. And I looked outside, and I could just see West London lit up it's by so this amazing. fireball mm. um, on on the horizon. Um, I'm on the fourth floor overlooking West London. So I, I, I saw the, the, the blazing building um, and thought, okay, I'm going to be in for a while. And I was in for a bit. We we had some patients, but actually we realised very early on um, that we had much fewer patients than we could have taken. And it's not because they were going somewhere else, it's because none of them survived. Uh, you, you look at that blaze and you just think that there's no way that somebody can survive that inferno. Uh, one of my colleagues actually resuscitated a girl and was quite traumatised by it afterwards. She's um, South Asian, um, her husband's white. Um, this girl, I, I think she was Middle Eastern of some sort, Syrian or something like that, and she looked just like her daughter. So kind of slightly paler than 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 she was, but not not as pale as her husband was, and it took her a long time to get over that. How do we get over things like that? I don't know. We talk about it. We act like a family. Um, And I think that's where having colleagues who are supportive and who you can talk to is so important. Having a a functional human department where we're not just working with work colleagues, we're working with our friends. Um, And we can talk about our personal issues. We can talk about our work issues. So... uh, I think in some ways it brought us closer together. Um, I do know that it made one of our trainees quit um, uh, because she just, she didn't like the helpless feeling Um, and the the feeling that you you can't do any more, but you should be doing more. And that's a really hard feeling as well. You know, I wanted to ask, there's so many questions I want to ask you about this. I mean, I remember that fire quite well. And I, I, I remember there were, um, I think, a lot of Syrian refugees that had, because it was around, you know, I mean, there were... And there were quite a lot of Syrians in that fire. And I just remember being, I mean, my heart was just broken. And that's as an outside observer, let alone, you know, you not only... <laughs> 
I don't want to make light of this. I want, you know, I, it's just, it's funny how it's not funny, but you just happen to be just nearby all of these major tragedies that happen. And you go in and you, you're there and you see it up close. And one of the things that I want to ask you is, now this seems like a ridiculous question because easier is not the right word. I was going to say, does it get easier? No, but does it get easier to process? Does it get easier to, to know what to do, knowing that you're not okay? The feelings probably don't change, but does the response change? And then of course, as you become more experienced and you see more and more of these and you're working with these junior doctors, does it help you be a better mentor, supporter, colleague? I mean, you talked about acting as a family. I don't know if that's your team or your hospital, you're at St. Mary's, or if that's, mm -hmm. if it's, if it's unique to the environment that you've helped create around you, or if that's something that happens in hospitals everywhere, I would be curious to, to know, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you evolve with tragedy after tragedy after tragedy? Ooh, so there's several questions here. I think, does it get easier? Um, I think it's, it's the first one that I want to tackle. Um, actually, yes, it gets easier. It doesn't, I don't think you stop feeling. Uh, and I think you still feel all the feelings um, in the same way. Um, I suppose um, the pathways that you use to process it and get to a final destination are well-trodden. Um, you know them, you, you know where you're going um, and how to not end up stuffing it into a corner and and um and it festers and and becomes um either ptsd or some sort of trauma or um or you get angry about it and things like that um so i i i think i think it certainly gets easier uh with with time um and you you develop shortcuts in your processing um, one thing that I've, especially after after Grenfell, and one of the conversations I was having with one of my colleagues, uh, so we work in a trauma center, and although we don't see it on the same scale, we see trage tragedies every day. People lose their limbs; that's their life over. You know, not not their life over, but you know, they they, they may not be able to do the job that they previously did, and 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 their life is going to change enormously. People get assaulted by people. And we see all really the, the depths of inhumanity um, on a smaller scale um, and also humanity. Um, and we have these mini tragedies all the time that we have to come to terms with. I remember uh, just every once in a while it gets under your skin as well. People talk about defense mechanisms. I, I don't... I don't think I've got any defense mechanisms because I, I, I think to, to get the empathy, you have to, you have to be open to, to those feelings rather than just be a, a hard wall that stops all those feelings there. I don't think, I don't think you're as good a doctor as, as you are if you can feel for your patients and, and feel empathy for them. I think that's something that's really important to pass down to our our trainees who are not as far along and particularly if they've been through a difficult time having 
a, a kind of cohesive department where you really care for your colleagues um, and you can discuss these sort of things with them makes their processing easier as well. And acknowledging that what we see can be really awful and really traumatizing and we just have to deal with that. And sometimes on a busy night shift, you might have something really traumatizing and then you haven't got time to process it because the next trauma call has come in. And that happened recently to one of my colleagues who um, he was in all night on call. He'd had one very severe trauma and then another, um, which actually ended up as a murder, uh, came in about half an hour later when he really wasn't in the mood to, to do any more serious work and serious thinking. And it was a very, very difficult situation um, mm. where he needed to use all of his uh, brain power. Um, to try and keep this patient alive. It sounds almost impossible to me. I mean, when you, do, you know, when you describe it, when I try to conjure up the mental strength, the, the stamina, the discipline, um, I mean, all of that, I suppose it comes from years and years of training and, and years and years of actually going through it. But I wonder if there are, do you feel like there are certain habits unique to the medical field that are bad coping mechanisms that people sometimes resort to if they don't have that supportive work environment, that supportive boss, if they don't really know how to process it, are there, you know, sort of typical bad coping mechanisms? And if you were, if you are mentoring someone who may be kind of coping badly, I mean, you know, are there signs, you know, kind of to look out for if as a supervisor, it's something that I talk mm. about with a lot of my guests in terms of the, you know, your role as a supervisor and not always knowing or seeing clearly that the people you're supervising are struggling, but to know, to pick up on these, re, you know, really subtle signs. Like, for example, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in a, the think tank industry. So, you know, quite different, but still very stressful topics. Um, a lot of conflict, a lot of, you know, tragic world events, I would say. And she said that one of her, one of the people she was supervising, she, because she was, she sort of gleaned that every once in, he would never take time off, except every once in a while, that person would call in sick the night before, and it was, it would always be just for one day. And that would happen at several. So she started putting two and two together and saying, this person is calling in sick at the last minute regularly. I think something is up. And then going and talking to that person. Yeah, really interesting. And I suppose we can go from kind of obvious um, bad coping mechanisms um, and to the subtle ones. I remember... Uh, just a very routine operating operating list with a, with a trainee um, who consistently, just in everything that she said, there was self blame. Just very very subtly, it was oh I, yeah I should have I, I, I should have done something different with, to get that cannula in. Oh yeah, um, I wasn't good enough for doing this, or uh, I, I, I should I should have done this better. Blah 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 blah. And I, I picked her up on it, actually, and made her try and turn it around to say uh, say something positive. So that cannula didn't go in and 
I will. Uh, uh, so, so taking out the I should have, yeah. I, I did something wrong. But, but, uh, and and what I'm going to do next time is I'm going to do this. And so putting something positive in there. Yeah. And and that on a very minor scale, I, I think sets you up for bad coping mechanisms because you're blaming yourself for everything. You, and you know, we have patients die on us. Uh, sometimes the right thing to do is to withdraw care uh, when things are futile, or uh, you know, when the, when the patient doesn't want them, want it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you have bad coping mechanisms like like that, if you have a negative kind of self-blaming attitude, and you fail because we will fail. I promise you, we will fail. Then you're blaming yourself for it. Um, if you're telling a relative that their patient has, their their loved one has died or is about to die, and you have that kind of secret self blame, um, that conversation becomes triply awful. Um, whereas, whereas if you can tell that same conversation and you think to yourself afterwards, okay. I did something really difficult there and it had a really emotional effect both on me and on the family but I think I did it well I think the family appreciated the way I was in that conversation and I I, I think that it will have made their grief for their loved one easier rather than more difficult mm-hmm. then that's a completely different thing that that's gaining, I wouldn't necessarily say satisfaction, actually, yeah, probably satisfaction um, from a difficult thing that you've done. And the next time you do it, um, you will hone it and you will make it more positive and hopefully improve on it even more and make even more of a difference to the, the family of the of the patient that's dying. Um, that, and so, so, so I think there's a lot of kind of very, very subtle things that you can do to take away some of the things that we instantly do as doctors. We're a very high performing people. We're super competitive. You don't go into med school without being competitive. I, 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 I don't, actually, maybe I know one doctor who isn't particularly competitive, but um, <laughs> most of us are. Um, and, you know, you're, you're married to one, so you, so you certainly know that, know that we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and and part of that competitiveness is if you, in inverted commas, lose, then you punish yourself for losing. And we can't do that. And we shouldn't do that. And we gain much more satisfaction from our careers and reduce the amount of burnout if we can turn that into some, something positive. And we can learn from it, but we can also gain satisfaction from what we've done. I think that's such a, a beautiful, positive constructive way to look at it. And I think it applies, you know, across career fields, but I mean, especially to, to the situation that you're talking about, but um, I self-blame can be very toxic. I can imagine Mm -hmm. that it is easy to blame yourself when you have a human life in front of you that you are responsible for. I don't pretend to know what that feels like, but I can imagine, Mm -hmm. Uh, can't imagine, but I, um, no, I think, I think you probably can imagine, and and um, and I, one of the things I think you know, lots of people say, oh, it must be very stressful, but it's it's generally I don't find it that stressful. I I find being a, an accountant much more stressful than than being a doctor because sitting down and looking at massive spreadsheets just it, it <laughs> makes my it makes my brain explode, and um, and and I suppose it's 
it's it's the things that if you're trained for something and you've got a a nice positive working environment then you reduce the amount of stress even when it's a high high stakes kind of uh, work that you're doing and so having that being in your comfort zone and having the tools already there in your training um, means that you're not not as stressed as you would be with something that's you know difficult I mean that makes sense and I think training pro- you know has its training is incredibly important when it comes to that I, I I mean I wonder if personality plays a bit of a part as well like some people are just highly highly sensitive or you know I was watching a mm-hmm. segment the other day related to mental health in the workplace and they were talking about highly sensitive people and highly sensitive people have a habit apparently <laughs> which I can relate to uh, of of thinking that they just they mu- they are responsible for fixing a bad situation I am going to do this job because I will fix it. I am needed. And then you just take that responsibility onto your shoulders. I imagine that that personality type would have a bit of a harder time in your field and not nothing insurmountable, but would probably need that lesson, those lessons that you're talking about really hammered into them, maybe a bit harder, a bit more than someone who is naturally sort of more pragmatic not as highly sensitive in those ways yeah yeah Um, and and i suppose are are those highly sensitive people more likely to um judge others by their standards as well uh i don't know do they become high performance but also high expectation and then when somebody fails their expectation do they blame i think they are much, they are their own worst critics and they, mm-hmm. you know, they are much more likely to, to be really forgiving of other people's shortcomings and be really empathetic with other people, but really, really hard on themselves. Got it. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I know those people and they do exist in medicine, I promise you. For those people, and I was just, you know, I was, I was wondering... Is that training, are these lessons that you're talking about ingrained in a sort of introductory training course that all doctors have to go through before they start working in the, in the emergency rooms and in the wards? Or is it something that if you have a great boss like yourself, then you're lucky because you just get to have that environment. And if you don't, you're just out of luck. Yeah, interesting thought. Um, and and the thought there is, um, is can we train people for this? And I, I, I've kind of I've thought about that a lot, and it's quite difficult. It's kind of like training people to do communication skills, breaking bad news, that sort of thing. And you can't really do it in theory um, until you've had some experience of it, and not just experience of watching other people do it, but actually experience of doing it yourself. Um, so it's the sort of thing where, yes, you can put some building blocks of the training. I'm not sure you can train the sensitive person to be in inverted commas less sensitive or um, until they know what they're being sensitive about mm-hmm. um, and then so so i suppose i suppose this is where mentorship is much more important than training and getting good role modeling good mentorship um good advice from people that you trust um who are able to analyze some of your behaviors and able to give you pointers about how you can kind of 
improve. It's somebody to hold your hand along your way rather than uh, uh, that kind of training, rather than um, a training course you can do at the beginning to stop you from getting into those situations. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It just makes me wonder about, you know, the reason I was asking is because I think one of the hardest things about mental health in the workplace is that is is the feeling is the lonely feeling that you feel when you think you're the only person who feels a certain way or the only person who can't you know be strong and just you know deal with it like everyone else seems to be dealing with it even though you have no idea what those people are doing behind closed doors or after hours or how they're deal dealing with it or if they're dealing with it but that, exactly. I mean, I have, you know, a, a very competitive field as well. I mean, my background, as you know, is in foreign policy. I worked mm. in very high stress environments and it was much more. And I think to this day, although slightly less so, but back then it was much more socially acceptable in that career field. If you're working in government, uh, working in finance on Wall Street, much more socially acceptable to go out and, you know, drink you know, happy hours were basically in lieu of therapy sessions. You know, you, it, you, 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 shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about how you're feeling at work, but it's totally fine to go out, drink ridiculous amounts of alcohol, you know, wake up the next morning, show up to work at 8 a.m., brag about how much you drank the night before, have a laugh, and then mm. do it again the next day. Incredibly toxic, incredibly unhealthy, and and incredibly socially acceptable <laughs> in that field. Now, I imagine that as a doctor, you, you know, you're, you're on call. I mean, I imagine, I, I don't know. I imagine that alcohol and drugs don't play that type of role in your field, but that's kind of why I was asking about and alluding to negative coping mechanisms. But when it comes to the lone, the loneliness factor of like, I, I, I should be tougher I don't know what to do. And then combined with what you said about the prevalence, as with any career field of toxic workplaces, the lack of mentors, um, mm. sort of the lack of the draw in terms of who your colleagues and supervisors were. That's why I was wondering if there was some sort of kind of like teaching communication skills, but not teaching, but just sort of like a like an awareness module or something, some training where you say, to newcomers, you know, welcome newcomers, you know, as part of your, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Induction or, or mm. induction, yeah. Orientation mm. and awareness of, you know, these are the types of issues that we face here. These are the really unhealthy coping mechanisms that won't help. You know, here's what you should do if you're feeling like this, or here are some healthy coping mechanisms. I don't know if that happens. It doesn't happen in a lot of organizations across any field, but it's starting to happen more and more. And I was wondering if that's a thing in your field or starting to, or is it still? Yeah, I, 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 th I think it is a thing. Um, uh, before I get onto that, um, medics are, are known for their love of alcohol. Um, oh, okay. And um, oh, yes, uh, not on call, obviously. I think it's certainly a coping mechanisms that, that doctors use just as much as anyone on Wall Street, etc. Interesting about the drinking culture, which Actually, if when you think about it, if you don't take part in that drinking culture, then you're probably less likely to to be promoted, um, for instance. And and you miss about half of the decisions that get made because if you go out to the pub afterwards, uh, 
you can't help talk about work and you end up making some big decisions and then you come to the office the next morning and the person who's either either muslim so it doesn't doesn't go to the pub or a female with a with a family um, or just somebody who doesn't want to go drinking uh, realizes that a load of decisions have been made that they've had they've not had anything to do with yeah um, and that's just fine which is crazy but anyway so so going on to the uh the the kind of uh, induction orientation thing. And I think it's something that we're beginning to do. And with with my role as um, Associate Medical Director for Education, which essentially I'm in charge of the education of doctors, both undergraduate and postgraduate in Imperial in my, in my hospital. And, um, and we've we're trying to improve our orientation for our international medical graduates who are coming in. Uh, and we've we've a, a appointed a director of medical ed education for locally employed doctors. Um, she herself um, is an international medical graduate, and she says that the worst day of her life was the first day at work. Oh, no. um, and why? That just made, it it made me feel so sad. Uh -huh. um, she she felt out of place. Um, she's in a new system that she didn't know that well. Um, the nurses were frustrated with her because she didn't know how to order this or how to do that. And she didn't know who to ask for this, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're trying to make this a lot better and, um, and putting in some of these kind of slightly mentory, almost training programs. Um, and uh, I, I think it's so important to, for satisfaction because we want these people to have a good time. Um, either Some of them are here for like a couple of years, then going back to their home country. Um, some of them uh, are planning on um, staying forever. Um, and we want them to, to come and have a long and fruitful career with us. And part of that is making sure that the first day isn't the worst day of their life. Um, <laughs> And um, and reducing the the sh enormous stress that you have when you're practicing medicine in, and not just in a new hospital but in in a new country with different systems and different guidelines. I, I want to make sure I ask you this before before we go. Um, and I know, of course, this you know it, it could be difficult to kind of. There's the theoretical aspect of this question, and then there's the practical aspect of this question. And the question is, if someone is listening to you right now on this show and is in the medical field and is struggling in a toxic work environment, they don't have someone that they could talk to. They don't have that mentor. They're feeling really overwhelmed. They don't want to, quote unquote, show weakness by you know, speaking out or asking for help. And they're just feeling like, the hole is just, you know, being dug deeper and deeper. What would you say to them? And, you know, obviously there's the theoretical, what would you say to them? And then of course they would have to take that advice and have the courage to take that advice. But what would you say to mm. someone like that who's listening right now? So this is so hard, isn't it? And I remember when we were talking before beforehand, um, we were talking about the fact that um, when you're when you're in a... Uh, or rather, the, the, a lot of the stress that you get from a job isn't necessarily from the job that you're doing. It's from the people that you're working with. And if you've got a team with which has uh, negative behaviors, where there's 
a bully, a single bully in a team will change the whole dynamic of the team. And I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. And it's so hard to deal with. And a lot of the time, I mean, I've, I've been bullied before and it was a really awful experience. It, but it took me a really long time to realize that it wasn't me. And initially I was thinking, why, why am I just not getting through to this person? Why am I, why am I not performing in this job? Why am I hating it? Why am I uh, having a bad experience? And my initial answer is to blame myself. To that person who's struggling, I first want you to turn the blame away from you. And I think that is probably the biggest relief initially. And because if it's not your fault, which you know, hopefully it isn't, then then you can actually start have a little bit of a clearer head about what factors are causing you to feel the way you're feeling. So what else can you do? Analyze, I suppose. Analyze what it is that you're that is making you feel overwhelmed. Is it the amount of work? Is it your boss? Is it uh, work that you're not suited to? And is it that particular workplace? And I suppose the the nuclear option is you resign from that job and you get a job somewhere else, Um, which, you know, I I know people who've done that and and who've been very happy in a different job somewhere else. And and sometimes that is necessary. But I think the, the first thing to do is to not blame yourself. Um, or not think, is it me? I don't know if it's me, but maybe it's maybe it's my fault. All of those things are putting putting the blame on you and making you feel even more overwhelmed. And then I suppose finding somebody that you trust somewhere else that you can talk about and t- talk about it to, whether that be an actual mentor, whether that be a professional coach, for instance, you may need to need to see a counselor. Uh, a therapist or something like that. One of my friends went into therapy, uh, was not having a good time in his in his work. Uh, had some therapy. It it was revolutionary for him. It just changed the the way he thought um, and the way he uh, he approached the the issues. And um, and he became a much more successful, much happier individual by doing that. So I suppose those are the kind of things that come to mind. Those are really important things, I think. Well, first of all, I just want to say on your last point, I am a huge, 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 anyone who knows me, anyone who's met me for even 15 minutes knows that I'm a huge advocate of therapy. And I think everybody should experience it at least for a little while. It should be like mandatory child, like, you know, <laughs> learn that one of the things that happens when you turn 16 or 30 or whatever it is that you have to do six months of therapy. <laughs> That's so American. <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of therapy. But um, so, but I, I think, look, I think what you said was incredibly important. And I just want to touch upon a couple of things that you said to tie it together, because I think that one of the things that is so difficult about working in a toxic work environment or dealing with a toxic person is two things. One is because you don't feel like you've done anything wrong, you don't understand why this is happening to you. Mm. You turn inwards and you try to understand, well, why is, what am I doing wrong? I don't think I'm doing anything. Why is this happening to me? How can I change this? And 
oftentimes with toxic, you know, supervisors, colleagues, or work environments, like you said, it it's not you most of the time. And also most of the time, it's not going to change, unfortunately. You know, it's it's something bigger than it's it's either that person or the environment itself. It's ingrained in the culture. And so the two things that you said really that I think are so important. I wish I had had this conversation with you before I, I had gone through my toxic environment experiences. <laughs> would have saved your fortune in therapy, right? <laughs> Is one, you know, turning the blame away from yourself, but also I think crucially having that analytical conversation, that really honest, objective conversation with yourself where you ask yourself, is this the right place for me? And if the mm. answer is no, to know that that is okay. It's not failure to walk yeah. away. It's not giving up. It's not being weak. It is you taking care of yourself, mm. putting yourself first and being good to yourself so that you can be good to everyone else around you. Because if you're not good to yourself, how on earth are you going to be good to those around you? So those are really important things, I think. And I really hope people take that to heart because those are also two things that you have the power to do yourself. You don't have to rely on HR or having to speak to anyone. No, these, these are internal exercises that you do with yourself. And so I do think that is so helpful. Yeah. And I, I, just taking that a little bit further. Um, so, uh, and, and particularly talking about bullying and, and bullies, uh, uh, what I find really interesting is that most of the bullies have no idea that they're bullies and their behavior is not necessarily a, a conscious behavior. It, it's probably a learned behavior. And there's a lot, we, we talk a lot about stamping out bullying. Um, which actually feels like quite a bullying term in itself. Um, <laughs> um, and um, I, I think something that we can, something that is really important and that everyone can do is e even if you're not stamping out bullying, uh, you are modeling positive behavior. And it's kind of the, the opposite. So it's not about um, identifying the bully. It's about um, changing the learned behavior of people by modeling a positive behavior. Um, and, and, and whole organizations can do that or small teams can do that. And as I, I said that um, having one negative person in a team has a massive effect on the team as well. But the, the, the opposite is also true of if, if you get one person on a team who's really good at turning behavior into a positive kind of role modeling behavior, then that also can transform a team. And, you know, wh whether it be leadership qualities, but actually it doesn't have to be the leader. It can be just one of the other people who's just um, role modeling some really excellent behavior. And if you can think of yourself as being that person and think in a situation where, where things are difficult, how can I model this positively rather than negatively can i give somebody a compliment in the corner just out of nowhere and say yeah you did that really well um and and that sort of behavior can transform a team and can help that person who's struggling who you might have no idea is struggling you know if i was struggling at work i'm not by the way um but if if i was struggling at work you wouldn't have any idea because i'm such a good compartmentalizer mm -hmm. um you wouldn't have a clue until it was like really late. 
but having some sort of positive steer like that can really help that person amazingly. I love that so much. And I think it's such a wonderful sentiment and, and guidance really to end our conversation on. It's, it, it, I love it. I love what you just said because it really, it really hammers the point that our actions are so important even when we don't think they are. When we are in a work environment, being a good colleague, being a good supervisor, being a good person is so important because you never know when someone might be struggling. I mean, I know this sounds cliche, but it is just so, so, so true and so important that that smile, that, you know, hey, how are you doing? If you do see someone struggling, not to assume that, you know, someone else is going to take care of it or, you know, I'll, and I, and I want to add actually, because this might be less common or less well-known, but if someone, especially if it's out of character for them, if someone start, starts acting, they make an angry snide comment or they lose their temper, you know, that's also a form sometimes of distress especially mm. if it's out of character for the person. So to really, as colleagues and as humans in a shared work environment, to just, you know, give the benefit of the doubt, which is very different from accepting a bad-natured person or bullying, but I'm just saying, you know, give the benefit of the doubt, ask after someone, ask about someone, be nice to someone. I mean, these are things that like literally cost nothing, but could yeah. make such a huge difference in when it comes to mental health in the workplace. So... I feel like that's incredible advice. And I hope that everyone listening, actually, regardless of what field they're in, understands the power of their own individual actions on not just an individual, but to the whole work environment. Mm. I completely agree. And I, th I think it's a really nice way of ending it uh, about positive role modeling and just flipping the atmosphere into a, into a supportive atmosphere from a neutral atmosphere. Um, it's not about just can't tackling the negative. It's about moving everything into the positive side. Exactly. Exactly. I was reading about this yesterday, actually, when I was uh, reading something about organizational psychology and well-being, that there's a trend now in the academic space, looking at well-being in, in the workplace, where instead of drilling down on what is wrong and how to fix it it's drilling down on what works and how to do more of it so yeah. it's it's just shifting towards that positive more forward-looking optimistic kind of constructive um environment which you articulated so well in your advice i've done two leadership courses and both of them actually really great one of the biggest revelations was that I could concentrate on my strengths because I've always been concentrating on my weaknesses, trying to improve my weaknesses, which actually psychologically crushes you because it, your weaknesses don't energize you. So I'm, I'm not a particularly, how shall I say this? Uh, I'm, I'm not a finisher completer and um, I have a short attention span and I'm easily bored. So for me to do long uh, that, that's why spreadsheets are so bad for me. Um, <laughs> for, for me to do something that's very detail-orientated and very long crushes me. Yeah. And it, it's triply hard for me compared to doing something that other people might find hard, which I actually find very easy, which is, for instance, evaluate something very quickly and make decisions. Um, I'm very good at that, and it doesn't stress me out at all. But 
being having permission to concentrate on my strengths and yeah. allowed to mitigate my my weaknesses by um, getting other people to help me um, who have those that skill set was absolutely rev revolutionary for me and really amazing. I think that's great. One of the struggles that people have that I've spoken to so many people about is like that feeling of, you know, what can I do? Like, what can I do better? Precisely because, especially in competitive environments and high stress career fields, HR is often not an option. They're not on your side. They're on the organization's side. They're there to protect the employer. And so you can't tell someone to go talk to HR about a toxic boss or how to be a better, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, and you can't talk often to the person themselves that's giving you stress or making you feel bad. And so a lot of what you're saying is really, I love it because it's very much internal work and it's work that you can do that will make a difference mm. to you and others. And focusing on your strengths is absolutely one of them. Well, Helgi, thank you so much. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing uh, everything that you just shared. I just feel like it's been an incredibly helpful episode, but, you know, especially more helpful coming from someone like you, you know, hearing the things that you're saying, I think is going to, um, to be helpful to a lot of people. So thank you for being so open and so honest and for sharing your thoughts and your advice um, with everyone. And I, I think my husband is very lucky to have someone like you to work with. I feel, I feel good knowing that he's going to work with someone like you. <laughs> I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jasmine. Thank you very much for inviting me to do it. I've, I've really enjoyed the, the, the last hours worth of conversation. Same here. Happily do it again. Yeah, maybe we'll do part two yeah. sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, I also wanted to let listeners know again that they can follow you on Twitter at Dr. Helgi um, if they wanted to keep up with what you were doing. And um, just once again, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, I apologize. Actually, I don't apologize for all the Eurovision and the general trash that I tweet, as well as some good stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're really appreciated by many. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Helgi. I really appreciate it. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Join me next week as I chat with Congressman Andy Kim on mental health in Congress, the January 6th riots, balancing service to country with commitment to family and the need for empathy in politics. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends to help us get these conversations to people who need to hear them.